0: Jean Harlow's bias cut dresses in red dust, Joan Crawford's dramatic shoulders in Letty Linton, Garbo's tattered blouse in Anna Christie, and Norma Shearer's tangerine robe in A Free Soul. These are all examples of designer Adrian's mark on MGM and American history. Power dressing is rooted in the way these women wore a frill. When you think of the 1930s, you may not think of women with power but there have been arguments made that beg to differ. Feminist film critic Molly Haskell in her 1970s book, From Reverence to Rape, makes the case that the treatment of women in film steadily declines from the 1930s to the 1970s. This argument makes a lot of sense when you consider how the sexual revolution of the 1960s came with the added bonus of making a sport out of the objectification of women, and also when you consider the history of women's roles in the industry as a whole over time. Most films in the 1930s were centered around women and oftentimes were written by women, That simply wasn't the case a few decades later. It is also worth mentioning that only white women with money enjoyed this freedom, even on film. So what makes the films of the 1930s, broadly speaking, feminist or at least more friendly to some women? The answer is agency. The female characters often have it. The agency is crafted for the audience using another tool of post-crash American entertainment escapism. The women who were centered in the films of the time were either wealthy or attempting their way to it. Money gave them the power and freedom, which often included moral freedom, that would not be possible to portray a woman from any other walk of life as having. In fact, MGM's most successful stories are often rags to riches, or as I call them, prostitute make good stories. Other times, the struggling protagonist doesn't win, but we allow her to trespass on quote-unquote good manners in her attempts to gain money, a.k.a. agency, a.k.a. equality. The most compelling element of how these so-called moral trespasses prevail without besmirching a thing as delicate as a woman's reputation and character is costume. Clothes quite simply elevate her, imbue her with the power that money promises. The hand that helped craft glamour what it could do, and what it meant for a woman's ability to move in the world is Adrian. Adrian, one name like Madonna, Adrian. He was the chief costumer at MGM in the 1930s and one of the most influential designers in film history, if not in history, period. The costumes that came out of MGM during this period are an inextricable part of American culture and ideas of glamour. While there are many spectacular creations that came out of all the studios in the 1930s, only one designer created with the integrity of the stars he clothed in mind. Adrian's design spoke in a language that connected to women directly. Other designers could make gowns that shone and danced in the light, but more often than not, They did nothing to enhance the personalities and power sources of the women that wore them. An example of a revered designer whose work falls short is Ori Kelly. Kelly costumed all of the Busby Berkeley spectaculars, which often worked on the principle of making individual women invisible by turning them into moving parts. One specific example of a design that did the character and the star a disservice is the white sequin gown worn by Betty Davis in Marked Woman, the 1937 film? The film stands up as a feminist triumph, but the costumes, with the exception of one floating veil hat worn by Davis in a court scene, works against not for the story and the women in the film. Davis, working as a hostess at a nightclub, hostess in quotes, because it's code for prostitute, at a nightclub is dressed in a white sequin spaghetti strap gown. The cut and the style of the dress don't fit her body or her character. It is an ill-fitted attempt to make her look glamorous, but instead, she looks like a child playing dress-up. The level of naivety it would require for her character to have actually chosen this dress is diametrically opposed to the storyline and Davis's role in it. In contrast to Kelly's designs for Davis... Adrian's designs and reverence for Joan Crawford is particularly noteworthy. He had a life size Crawford mannequin, complete with face and hair, made up for him to work with when she wasn't available. Joan didn't start out as the powerhouse we consider her now, quite the opposite. Her roles in the 1930s are oftentimes difficult to witness because she, the character she plays, are so unprotected. Adrian's costumes are her scaffolding. More than any other star he worked with, he helped support her when the world didn't and gave her characters dignity and grace through brilliant design. In fact, I think it's worth taking the time to properly value her, not as a caricature of power, a role that is assigned to women who finally achieve it, but as a star. This is similar to the Gwyneth Paltrow phenomenon. People seem to find her sickening now that she has parlayed her star power into actual wealth especially since since that wealth was made through the sale of beauty care products pitched by the promise of a timeless and power-filled beauty such as her own. We could have a conversation about what kind of woman is allowed to achieve this kind of success, if that's right or fair, attractive, thin, and white, but treating her like a target practice prop seems like age-old sexism to me. Joan started her career very young in silent films. She successfully made the leap to sound and starred in a slew of what I am calling Prostitute Makes Good or Sexy Stenographer films in the 1930s. Those films include Grand Hotel, where she literally plays a sexy stenographer who falls for John Barrymore but ends up a rich nursemaid to Lionel Barrymore. Crawford's character is lent the most magnificent level of grace through the suit she wears while waiting for her lecherous boss, Mr. Prizinger, played by Wallace Barry. The suit consists of a black, slim-cut skirt with a double-breasted jacket that is adorned with a collar like nothing before it or since. Made of a sheer white chiffon, the collar is asymmetrical and trimmed with accordion pleated ruffles. The right side of the collar drapes exaggerated amounts of fabric over the breast of her jacket, while the left side is a small, traditionally sized collar, both with accordion pleats that delicately flutter around the otherwise simple skirt suit. The cuffs make Crawford look like an elegant sea creature who could kill you with one look. The cuffs are made of the same sheer white chiffon as the collar. The fabric comes up and over the tapered wrists and buttons back at the elbow, emphasizing the accordion pleated ruffled trim by placing it on the top of her forearm. This suit is one of my favorite designs by Adrian. It elevates the working girl to a kind of bride of business. In fact, I could see Sophia Ritchie getting married via courthouse ceremony in this suit. The dress Adrienne designed for Crawford to wear in 1932's Letty Linton was the most duplicated dress in history. It is a ruffled and peplumed confection that makes her shoulders the focus by adorning them with five tiers of ruffles that pile up and then spill over her shoulders like icing dripping off a cake. This wasn't a one-time focal point her shoulders. It was a primary area of emphasis for most of Crawford's costumes. Joan had a statuesque frame with broad shoulders. Rather than attempt to hide or diminish this fact, Adrian emphasized it. And so came the birth of power dressing. The shoulder padded skirt suits of the 1980s and 1990s that brought that working girl into the mainstream began with Joan Crawford's shoulders and Adrian's designs. In the 1931 film, Possessed, Crawford plays a small-town girl working in a paper box factory, who leaves her beau, played by Wallace Ford, to go to New York City. She eventually meets and falls in love with Mark Whitney, played by Clark Gable. The premise is she is a kept woman, because Whitney will not marry her for his own selfish reasons. Her reputation is destroyed by the arrangement. Whitney changes his mind, but by then, she decides to leave him so he can pursue a career in politics without the disgrace of her reputation reputation hanging over his head. Ford comes back into her life to try for a second time to marry Crawford, but changes his mind when she tells him the truth of her relationship to Whitney. In a scene we will examine closer, Ford basically calls her a tramp and leaves her flat. In the beginning of the film, Crawford's character laments to her mother, played by Clara Blandick, and her boyfriend, Al Manning, played by Wallace Ford, that, quote, there is everything wrong with me, my clothes, my shoes, unquote. This line gets at a very important point, not just within the context of possessed, but in life. For a woman, autonomy, power, and pleasure start with wardrobe. This is something Crawford and her character understood. Mommy dearest aside, wire hangers do ruin a wardrobe. Crawford's character, Mary Ann's wardrobe, gives her the aforementioned autonomy in the scene where Al, right after proposing marriage, calls her a tramp in response to finding out about her now-over relationship with Mark. During this 15-shot scene, in which the longest shots are the ones in which we can see Marion's dress more fully. She becomes angelic under the barrage of slut-shaming she's made to endure. The more her dress is revealed, the more she becomes immune to Al's attacks. Marion is wearing a full-length, bias-cut, white sleeveless gown that is trimmed with white feathers. In the back, a delicately draped and suggestive of angel wings ruffle crosses her shoulder blades along with a flurry of white feathers. Her breasts are topped with small feathers, and her waist is is cinched with them too. She is completely held in by soft and pure power that a man like Al cannot diminish. It is Al that is cut down in this scene, not Marion. After he realizes that she had a sexual relationship with Mark, he also realizes that Mark has professional sway that he could use against Al. Al begs Marion to fix it with Mark and demands she call him on the spot. The scene ends with a shot of Marion's angel winged back as she picks up the phone to call Al a cab, not Mark on Al's behalf. Her dignity never falters. She is steadfast in her grace in no small part because she is surrounded, supported, and held by that white gown. By the 1950s, Crawford had transformed in the public view from a hard earned, elegant woman into a power hungry and man-eating shrew this wasn't exactly her transformation it was part societal punishment for the power she had achieved over her at that point 30 year career and part sign of the times in the 1953 film torch song she was made to wear garish costumes and play out her punishment on screen that film's entire premise is punishment Her character, Jenny Stewart, is a Broadway star whose perfectionism has stood in the way of her true calling, wife and mother. In exchange for her short-sighted life choices, career and family, she spends her evenings alone crying in awful clothes. It is a blatant disrespect to see the great Joan Crawford dressed in a canary yellow terry cloth robe, styled as a cape, alone in her bedroom, looking like a caged bird. The costume designed by Helen Rose do Crawford and her character a grave disservice. When you compare Torch Song to the 1937 film Mannequin, where Joan plays a model, code for prostitute, who makes good by walking out on her no-good husband to stand on her own strength, you can see the difference a decade makes. She does the walking out in clothes that support and flatter her, not degrade and diminish her like the garishly drawn clown suits of Torch Song. Say what you will about MGM, and there is plenty of awful stuff to say. But during the 1930s, when Adrian was their costume designer, the stars had visible support. Greta Garbo started her career, like Joan Crawford, in Silent Pictures. Similar to Crawford, Garbo played the vamp in those early days of MGM. By the time she made the switch to talkies, she was drawn as a more complicated heroine. Anna Christie was Garbo and MGM's first talkie. It was made in two languages, German and English. This was to accommodate the international audience that Silent Pictures easily reached but would ultimately disappear with sound. The introduction of sound effectively split up and separated audience by language, rather quickly marking the official division in country's film industries. Garbo's reputation as a mysterious love goddess is shattered in Anna Christie. She's still a goddess, but a rather common one, code for prostitute. The code isn't exactly subtle, given the Hayes Code is years away. Garbo's co-star, the hilarious Marie Dressler, plays Marthy Owens, the girlfriend of Anna's father, Chris Christofferson, no relation to the 70s film star, played by George Marion. Marthy is directly referred to as a war frat, which, if you are not familiar, is the the by-the-sea version of lot lizard, a colloquial term for truck stop sex workers. Anna comes from the Midwest, where she was raped and then turned out by her cousins, After the strain of working in a cat house proves to be too much for Anna, she travels east to live with her father on his barge. She meets and falls in love with a rough and tumble type, a sailor like her father, named Matt, played by Charles Bickford. Matt is predictably awful when he finds out about Anna's past, but not as bad as her father, who chooses to look away and take no responsibility for her situation. Garbo embodies the role of Anna with the help of tattered, thrifted separates that she picked out with Adrian. Anna Christie is the only film costumed by Adrian that he did not design the costumes himself. They went to charity shops together to choose Anna's wardrobe. They succeeded, not just in securing the proper attire for a young prostitute, but in building a world for Garbo's first on-screen words. The shift of her power from existing in the realm of visual sex, typical of her silent days, to the realm of audible and all-knowing woman, happens in Anna Christie. Garbo is an honest and brash powerhouse, and she has never ceased to impact the popular imagination. The days of Garbo as silent vamp are over. Adrian had the sensitivity to know where Garbo's strength actually lived, She didn't need Chiffon Ruffles to rule the screen, just to say in her own image and dialogue worthy of her. Almost every scene and every phrase in this film is worth examining. Lines from Anna Christie are still repeated in popular culture, albeit divorced from their original feminist force. As an example, in the second-to-last scene, Garba utters the famous line, quote, put that in your pipe and smoke it, unquote. Garbo, dressed in utilitarian wool skirt and plain gray turtleneck, refuses to marry Bickford, who is as dumb as a child and as cruel as an adult man. Garbo exclaims, you're just like the rest of them, in response to his disgust when she divulges that her reasons for not accepting him in marriage is her past as a prostitute. It was not what she chose but was chosen for her through the unconsidered and wildly powerful actions and inactions of men. Her life started with her father abandoning her and then was followed up with forced prostitution. It is this moment in this scene that Garbo glows with palpable rage. Her voice becomes gravel as she pulls at the simple turtleneck sweater confining her body. She nearly tears it as she growls out, the confession that she worked in a house, meaning a cat house, code for prostitution, all of this is the direct result of being neglected and abused by the men who were supposed to protect her. The fury does not just stem from familial cruelty. It is driven by the active denial of the people who have the power to make choices, not just for themselves, but for Anna. Greta in Anna Christie and to a lesser extent Grand Hotel, is the ultimate bearer of truth. She is the container for the damage done to women, and she embodies that exhaustion so completely that she becomes ethereal. Her status as goddess is better understood as a being who cannot possibly hold all the wounds the world has inflicted on her kind, woman. Adrian's role as her exclusive customer is one of friend and collaborator, He helps her hold her own against the slings and arrows that the world has thrown at her by building her armor and, like an Anna Christie, helping her tear it down when called for. In Grand Hotel, Goulding, 1933, Garbo plays a glamorous and suicidal Russian ballerina named Grunskaia. Her role may seem directly opposed to Anna in Anna Christie, but it carries a lot of the same themes. She falls in love with the baron, played by John Barrymore. John Barrymore is shot and killed by a textile magnet named Preisinger, played by Wallace Barry. John Barrymore attempts to steal Barry's wallet so he can escape the people he owes money to. This daring feat will, in theory, enable him to run away with Garbo. Instead, he ends up dead, and Garbo is unwilling, unwittingly victim of circumstance. Of course, the circumstance is that of poor choices made by the men around her. This kind of storyline is where Garbo got the reputation for being the love or sex goddess. In reality, Garbo's character is tired of dancing for an ungrateful audience, and then she falls in love. This is not a miraculous devotion to love or an enslavement to sex, but a human being fully embodied and experiencing things at full force. The quote unquote drama of Garbo is real, but its force comes from being asked to bear too much not from an unearthly devotion to love. We meet Garbo's character, Gruenskaya, for the first time halfway through Grand Hotel, inside the confines of her darkened private room. She is laying in a luxurious bed in a state of unrest, even turmoil. She is dressed in the most magnificent gold lame robe. It has a high-necked mandarin collar with an asymmetrical closure, The cuffs are tapered, starting at the elbow and clinging tight at the wrist to finish. The robe is floor-length, with a modest train that pools in the back like champagne being continuously spilled. She pulls at the belt as if to strangle herself at the waist, and she moans, She will not dance tonight. It is in this one short scene that Garbo, with the help of Adrian's gold-plated armor he surrounds her in, emotes the exalted weariness that is the hallmark of her specific brand of glamour. This hallmark of Garbo's isn't the blurring of edges to make a soft, round bonbon for the audience's consumption, but a full, even overloaded, human presence that becomes the guiding principle for Hollywood glamour ad infinitum. Garbo is always more, never less. Adrian has been quoted as saying, quote, when the glamour goes for Garbo, it goes for me as well. Unquote. The original source of this quote is a photoplay article from the year he left MGM in 1941. This quote has become Hollywood lore and is routinely referenced among both Adrian and Garbo's biographers. This was supposedly a response to Garbo's exit, not just from MGM, but from the public at large. Adrian quickly followed Garbo, opting to leave his post at MGM and open up shop as a boutique owner in Beverly Hills, a short drive but a long cry from the impact and influence he had had at MGM. But before his exit, he had much more influence to flounce around Hollywood. If Garbo is the embodiment of the female soul, then Harlow is a roadmap for feminine wiles winning out. Next week on Glamour Girls Next Door, MGM to Playboy, we have the second part of Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. See you then.